0: There is far more learning in the Blockbuster story if people would dig in and and understand it a little bit better. Because really what happened was not Blockbuster's failure to keep up with technology. In fact, people don't even know this, but Blockbuster partnered with Enron in the early 2000s, like 2004 or something, to try to come up with the first streaming video capability. I'm Ricky Mulvey, and that's James Keyes, He's the former CEO of Blockbuster and 7-Eleven, also got a book out called Education is Freedom, The Future is in Your Hands. My colleague Deidre Woolard caught up with Keyes to talk about what he learned from 7-Eleven franchisees, how micro rewards could transform education, and the less discussed parts of the Blockbuster story.
1: Well, Jim, you have had this really varied career. It's led you through top organizations, very important positions. How has education been a through line for you?
0: It was by far the most important enabler for me. And, you know, interestingly, uh, I grew up first generation to attend college, none of my family, brothers, sisters, father, mother. So I had no idea. I was a very typical young person, Who doesn't really know how or believe that it's possible and it made all of the difference in the world I was fortunate enough to go through a four-year school College of Holy Cross Massachusetts was able to attend business school at Columbia Graduate School of Business and it provided a, a platform really for opportunity and I think that's the big difference a lot of question about college today but what it gave me is breath that gave me so many different doors that I could go through. In fact, gone through many of those doors. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and, and one of them uh, led you to to Seven Eleven, and your career there is interesting because you had to deal with so much change so quickly. So you you have this phrase that I love in the book: "Change equals opportunity." I think that's interesting because most of us, when we're hit with change, we go, "Oh no!" You know, as a as an individual, as an investor, we have this attitude that change is change isn't going to be good. It's going to be disruptive. It's going to be negative. So how did you embrace change when everything was shifting at Seven Eleven?
0: Exactly. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I I woke up one day and said, you know, change equals opportunity. In fact, it was in the course of writing the book, and I said, well, that that acronym CEO is really the job of every CEO. You know, so it's it was a wonderful fit, and and it also made me realize that growing up, I faced a lot of adversity. You know, we all do. Families are you know a mess and broken homes and you know, poverty, all kinds of challenges as a kid. And I realized that, you know, those things that I had to deal with actually made me stronger and made me more able to deal with change. So when I got to 7-Eleven, here I thought my career was on a fast trajectory and I was with this fabulous company. They were doing great, New York Stock Exchange Company. And then they did an LBO and in 1987, the market crashed and they had $4 billion of debt at 17%. But but interestingly, while some people would look at that and say, well, this is devastating. You know, I'm a young guy, I started my career, the company's bankrupt, They're saying it's going to go away. Instead of having my head down, I said, well, what have I got to lose? I'm going to work harder. We'll come out the other side of this. And it turned out that not only did the company come out better for having to have to restructure with a whole new business plan, et cetera, but I came out better as an individual and an employee of the company with far greater opportunity than I had going into that crisis. So it was really a great lesson for me. Change doesn't mean bad, a lot of times we think it. It's really our response to change, rather than the change itself that makes all the difference in the world.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's so true. I think I think that's something we all have to we all have to learn over time. And I'm interested because at 7 Eleven you learned about this idea of Kaizen from your Japanese business partners. And you've got this story about how this led to a better Slurpee. We all we all we all have affection for the Slurpee. Tell us a little bit about this.
0: Well, I you know, I was armed with a graduate degree in business and I had all of these skills, and I thought I knew, you know. Basically, how to turn around a company from you know classic business training, but then I got to Japan and i I, I was astounded at the success of my Japanese partners with seven eleven They had completely transformed the business we were We were in the United States having trouble selling a quality hot dog, and they were selling fresh sushi delivered three times a day to the store, restaurant quality sushi. And you know, I was shocked at that, and I and I started to tr- to really try to understand, learn from them what they had done, what were their business principles that helped them be so successful, and it, and it came down to something that I was shocked to learn originated all the way back with Edward Deming, you know, post World War II, an American that was over there trying to help with reconstruction of the of the of the country following World War II. And, and he came up, you know, he presented a, a simple principle called plan do see, or, you know, I, I refer to it as the scientific method. In other words, have a hypothesis. I think this is going to happen. You put an action in place, and then you step back and measure it. And then you modify the, the action to based on the results, based on the data. This is so ridiculously simple. But they took that principle to the nth degree. Incorporated into all their, virtually all of their business decisions and created as a result a far better business model that came right down to individual products. They would take every individual product, have a hypothesis for how to make it better, put an action in place, put it in front of the customer, measure the results, and then come back and reinvent it. You know, the whole Kaizen concept of continuous improvement, they were actually putting in place. And so I learned a lot from them about that and I've tried to incorporate it into every business that I've had since.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I wish I wish we got sushi here at the 7-Eleven. It would be awesome. <laughs> someday. Someday. Someday, I hope so. Well, and another thing with, with 7-Eleven that you talk about in the book, which is the diversity of 7-Eleven franchisees. You know, it's it's been the butt of jokes sometimes, but you also talk about how it's the source really of the brand strength. So you you sort of you really got into learning about those franchisees and what this what owning a 7-Eleven franchise meant to them. So, what lessons did you learn from those franchisees?
0: I did. It was fascinating. It it, it actually occurred post 9/11 when, you know, we started having some problems at 7-Eleven because people saw us as majority minority and and they saw the people behind the counter and they started taking out their aggression right after nine eleven uh, with our stores, and so we, I tried to understand and began to talk with franchisees about why did you decide on seven eleven, and I discovered that what they were practicing is the American dream. I mean, they would come here with five hundred bucks in a in a suitcase, and then they would work in a store, save up enough money to buy a franchise, and then turn that into opportunity, bring relatives, and put them to work, and. And I I began to realize that this is really the strength of 7-Eleven. We ended up with 135 different countries represented. And it taught me a lesson about diversity. And in the book, I don't use the word diversity because it's been such a polarizing word lately. You know, it's getting attacked from all directions. And, you know, really what it comes down to and my learning from my 7-Eleven franchisees is it's really cultural literacy, It's, it's understanding other cultures and recognizing that, you know, I have more to learn from them. And if I collect the learnings from all of these different cultures that I have exposure to, I'm going to be a patchwork quilt of their strengths and it's going to make me a better person overall. And so I've re kind of purposed the idea of diversity into what I call cultural literacy in the book and encourage everybody to pursue that. And it was the, really the lesson that I learned from my own 7-Eleven franchisees.
1: I love that. Well, let's move on, talk a little bit about Blockbuster, because you, you had this very successful 21-year career at 7-Eleven. You come into Blockbuster as CEO at this critical time. What do you think people get wrong about the stories that we tell now about Blockbuster and what really happened?
0: Well, unfortunately, like everything else, people are looking for the simple answer. So the simple answer is, well, Netflix must have beat Blockbuster, and Blockbuster didn't keep up with technology. There is far more learning in the Blockbuster story if people would dig in and and understand it a little bit better, because really what happened was not Blockbuster's failure to keep up with technology. In fact, people don't even know this, but Blockbuster partnered with Enron in the... Early 2000, like 2004 or something, to try to come up with the first streaming video capability, that was way too early. There's a rumor that Netflix tried to offer themselves to Blockbuster, that was in the year 2000. That was before streaming was even a thing, or even on anyone's radar screen. And so, really what ultimately happened was Blockbuster spun out of Viacom as an IPO, Viacom used to own the company, they spun them out in the year 2004 with a billion dollars of debt on the balance sheet. No problem. Blockbuster was a cash cash flow machine, could handle that debt, and they were going on down the road. When I arrived in 2007, first thing I did was to buy a streaming video company called MovieLink. So we were well positioned. We had new releases. MovieLink had 3,000 digitized movies, the largest Assortment of anybody in the industry at the time, and we renamed that product Blockbuster On Demand. Very well positioned to compete, we doubled EBITDA earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, et etc., and we tripled net in our earnings release for the third quarter of 2008. So you might say, well, w- w- what happened? <laughs> you know, yeah. you were perfectly well positioned. Well, if you remember what happened in September of 2008, Lehman Brothers collapsed. The banking industry basically was on edge, and virtually all lending was shut down. Well, a third of our debt was due in the year 2009. That is the story of Blockbuster, that we were unable to refinance that debt at a reasonable interest rate. We were forced, ultimately, into a restructuring of the company, and we sold the company to a strategic partner, Dish Networks.
1: That's that's fascinating a part about being ahead of the game with streaming because I think that happens so often. We see it over and over with products that come out before the audience is is ready. And you know, I, I'm wondering what's going to happen with with things like Apple's Vision Pro. Is this the right time for it? Is it too
0: early? We don't know. Exactly, exactly. You know, and and that's the unique thing about technology and about embracing change. I mean, you you have to see it coming. You do have to embrace it. But the timing is critical and really it wasn't that we were too early as much as it was you know because we were well positioned we knew we were early kids were still basically streaming on their xbox tvs weren't smart yet for frame of reference the ipad didn't launch until 2009 so this was very very early in the game but it was really the cash flow and the lesson here for all businesses is that You know, remember the old expression, cash is king. Well, particularly in a time of crisis, and there's a lesson right now. Because if I go back in my history, all the way back to 1987, when I joined 7-Eleven, they ran into the, the financial market collapse of 1987 and had to restructure the company. Then again, I experienced it in 2008. When we went, when 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 interest rates went from five or six percent all the way up to twelve for challenged companies or more, here we are in that same environment today, where companies may have borrowed at two or three percent a few years ago, and now all of a sudden they're having to pay seven or eight percent. So the lesson is there from the past: if you're careful about cash management, you can weather the storm, but. That debt can be a killer and cause a company to, you know, have to step back and restructure.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so you were the CEO of two big companies, and certainly with with Blockbuster, uh, not not an easy time. You you talk about in the book about the kind of being tried in the media in relation to the things that the Blockbuster was doing. Some of that was clearly out of your control, but. As a CEO, when when you're facing that heat, what are some of the the challenges of kind of tuning out everyone saying, "What are you doing?" and staying focused on what you need to do?
0: Yeah, I had a, an interesting experience. I had a, started getting calls from my buddies in New York because uh, I didn't uh, take the New York Post, living in Dallas, Texas. But the New York <laughs> New York Post printed a half page color picture of me with a Pinocchio nose because yeah oh. <laughs> you know, yeah it was not it was not a pretty sight and, and the reason they did it is that they had been challenging me about this you know balance sheet and were we going to be able to refinance our debt but blockbuster had such a cash flow advantage that I really didn't anticipate filing for uh, chapter 11 for restructuring well we put out a 10k and we gave the warning that that could happen and certainly when Moody's gave us an increase in our debt rating, but declared us a potential default risk. The New York Post went crazy with it and said, you know, Blockbusted was the headline, I believe. But I know, it was brutal, it was brutal. But the learning from that, really, and from all of the, you know, false information about Blockbuster, and, you know, people assuming that Netflix crushed the company, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you realize it's not personal, it's business, And it's such an important learning because confidence is critically important for a leader in any environment that they can't take these things personally. It's going to happen and you're going to get attacked from all sides at times. But if you know you're doing the right thing, if you have the confidence to continue leading and doing the right thing, then you can recognize this isn't personal, it's just business and You know, sometimes there are motives that people have behind these attacks that they're making and, and you recognize that and you move on.
1: Well, I want to get your take on, on AI, because I've been talking to people about it for a while. And one of the things that I've heard from younger people is that, you know, traditional education isn't necessarily working for them anymore, partly because they're like, why do I have to stuff my brain with all of this stuff if the computer can do it faster and better? So how are you sort of thinking about AI and how it relates to traditional education?
0: I, I am super excited about AI. I, I'm, As you can tell, I'm excited about technology in general. When Starlink lights up entire continents like Africa and enables technology to provide learning in places that we could never even get books to historically, I mean, the, the opportunity is amazing. And you look at AI, and again, there's a lot of fear. And- probably natural, but we should be cautious about these new technologies, but think about the good that AI can do. So we have taught in school the same way for a hundred years, blackboards, books, right? Teacher standing in front of the class, standardized test, bell curve, and a lot of people that doesn't fit. And with AI, we have the opportunity to tailor, literally curate that lesson to the way somebody learns. So some of, some of us learn better with videos. We can curate that training to have them watch videos. And others respond better to the written word. Others to a teacher or a professor. We can find the best algebra professor in the world and pipe them into the classroom. So the teacher then becomes almost a concierge to let someone who really knows how to teach, teach. And then we measure the performance of the students and the best way they learn based on their results. And we can keep modifying and keep improving. So think about this is not artificial intelligence. This is maximizing human intelligence. It's doing the same thing. It's not machine learning. It's human learning and improving human learning over and over and over again by using the technology to enable it.
1: Yeah. But one of the things I worry about with technology, though, is, you know, we've seen since the pandemic, students have done worse because because, of remote learning. So what do you think about how we still bring in that human connection so that people are still taking in the information?
0: Yeah. I'm Again, I'm not worried about it because I did a lot of work on digital learning during the pandemic, and I was excited about it because we moved forward as, as much as 20 years in providing access to digital learning just by lighting up cities with Wi-Fi capabilities and hotspots and giving kids laptops, et cetera. What we are in this in the early stages, it's almost like the early stages of digital streaming, right? It was a horrible experience. And everybody said, oh, this is never going to work, right? Not true. Technology will, over time, integrate the platforms, make them better. Here's some examples. LinkedIn learning. It's a wonderful thing, but it basically takes textbooks and turns them into video, digital. Well, with the next generation, you'll be able to, instead of showing a biology class, you'll be able to take somebody into an operating room and watch a live operation going on. That's a whole different level of learning. The best example I can give you is all the kids that hated digital learning would put away their homework and then play video games for eight hours, right? Why? It was engaging and the the the, the graphics were eye popping. Another really important difference, they had incentives. So why not provide incentives? In fact, I'm working on a, a, a thing I call microfinance. It's like microfinance, but micro scholarships. So instead of giving kids scholarships at the end, we should be working on incentivizing them up front. I've encouraged friends and friends' children, use Khan Academy to learn math. But Khan Academy is a little dull. But if you got every time you pass a test, you got 20 cents for it. By American Airlines because they want people to learn math and science, then you might have the incentive and have more fun doing it and staying in and engaged in those programs. So again, it's, it's early. The technology is going to bring these things that improve engagement. So I am super confident that we're going to find education is transformed in the same way that we've transformed retail with Amazon or automobiles with Tesla. We're going to find when education works its magic on teaching and learning, phenomenal what can occur. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Ricky Mulvey. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.